Okay, so thank you so much for uh, making time for the Waterfowl Podcast. Um, you're the 24th guest in this sort of journey I've been on, and you were somebody who, in a way, started it all by doing what you do. So this is Carol Ann Leishman, uh, who I remember from Powell River when we went there for the last in-person ABICC. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it was so great. I remember that whole dance uh, number and everything that happened there. And, you know, (laughs) it's... a lifetime ago. It does. It really, like, well, or just, like, one long day, you know? (laughs) (laughs) One long day ago, yeah. (laughs) Because, like, I mean, with, like, being involved for me for the UBCM, I've only done that virtually. I've never really, like, the going to the AVICC in Powell River was... And then the previous to that, the training in Parksville at the Tynamara, when I first got elected, that was like my experience of forum, other like local governments, what they're doing, what's working for them. And then with COVID, it was just like, oh, well, you know, everything's gotten easier. You never have to leave the house. And and that's it's it's good. Um, but there's I always like to think of things as like a two sided coin or a double-edged sword right so sometimes I myself am getting a little um antsy in my house you know like it's become a school it's become a workplace I mean I already worked from home before the pandemic started but okay now I do it also with you know my spouse he's doing a presentation right now too and uh it's just really funny to I guess for me, I had like the house to myself before, and now I have to share it. So it's like my territory got smaller, I guess. <laughs> but I would love for you to talk to me about Pal River and about some of the things that are, you know, interesting you, the theme of your week or anything really that interests you. Sure. sure. Well, um, yeah, it's uh, it's challenging times, as we know, and, and um, it's just, I, I'm pretty grateful actually for having the, the direction that things have shifted due to COVID. Like it, it does make it easier to have a lot of things be virtual because I was always being it, living in Powell River. You know, we're a bit of an isolated community, uh, probably like yourself. Like it's not super easy to just jump in your vehicle and drive to Nanaimo for a meeting or, you know, like, and, and I think some of the bigger communities would take that for granted. And I was always pushing for some of these other types of meetings to be have more virtual um, attendance available for us. And there was always resistance before COVID. So Mm -hmm, it -hmm. really pushed everybody to be able to be online a lot more, which, which helps because in my day job, I have a really challenging day job in that I work in construction as a green builder and uh, architectural designer. And it's, um, I can't always get away. I can't always just take the day off to drive to somewhere for a meeting or, you know, even a meeting in town, I can't always be there. But if it's because I was able to transfer to kind of transition to kind of a hybrid work model as well, I do, I mean, a lot of my work is on the computer. So I've been, since COVID, I've, I've shifted to working from home predominantly for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was easier for me to jump from my work day on the same screen to just like logging into a virtual meeting and attending that for a clean, you know, hour or only 45 minutes and then just jumping back to work rather mm-hmm. than if I would have had to leave work and then go to a place and then have that whole you know so it, it's just made my life a little bit more efficient in a lot of ways but then we right asked like what so that last February actually we finally got the go-ahead to start construction on a seniors affordable housing apartment building which is the largest project that I've ever project managed so we got the approvals there were so many delays with the approvals that of course the worst possible timing <laughs> in the middle of COVID we get the approvals to start construction and all like prices of materials went through the roof all of a sudden and you know shortages of labor and I mean we've had just the biggest challenges so this week has been it just seems like one hurdle after another it's just in life I think is I feel like a a horse running a race and running into hurdles the whole time yeah Um, this week has been like no exception and it's been like the biggest hurdles have happened this week it feels like (laughs) for sure well and like 
for me, it's like been like kind of a mental hurdle this week because like I just like with this podcast, I'm like, what am I doing this for? You know, and like I just sort of like I'm having an existential crisis, I guess. But I think that uh, <laughs> and and maybe that's just like a reflection of my character. Right. You know, like, <laughs> But I think, too. Yeah. And like at the beginning, I remember um you know, sort of the talk, oh, okay, COVID, this is like a marathon, not a sprint, right? You know, and I was not a marathoner or a sprinter, uh, <laughs> but I did jump a few hurdles in my day. And, <laughs> and I feel like that's more accurate. You know, there is, you know, big jumps and, you know, uh, long sustains, right? You know, like yeah, yeah. I heard something on the radio today that the person uh, had written a poem at first. They were like, oh, avoid public transit. I'm like, you should be so lucky, you know, because I don't have that option to have public transit. So yeah. it's either, you know, uh, make bad choices or make bad choices. But right. um, the person also went on into their poem and said, if people nourish you, and I guess that's maybe where that, like, you know, crisis of conscience or faith is coming from where, you know, I guess I was, uh, people never believe me when I say I'm shy, but I do feel that way. And like COVID has sort of like enabled me to do more virtually do like twice the amount of meetings that I would have usually, you know, like going to something virtually like this past UBCM because it was virtual. I was able to be in Ontario with my family. My sister was having a baby while also, you know, adjusting for the time difference and then doing my my BC work, right? You know, so it was like sort of like double timing things, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and that's been amazing because it, it shows how efficient we kind of can be if we like cut out all the non-essential okay. things like the <laughs> yeah. traveling from Powell River to Tassis or vice versa or to Nanaimo or Victoria yeah. or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I guess it's made me miss those non-essential things, you know? <laughs> You know, like just like those, like the thrills, right? You know, like the the part of like the meeting in itself is really useful and helpful. But I feel like there's a lot of work that gets done on the s shoulder sides of things. Oh, for sure. And like sort of off networking. Yeah, networking is one of the big things. I would say connecting with other you know, colleagues and discussing, well, how did you guys do that? Oh, that's so cool. Like, you know, in a relaxed environment where you're just, you know, having a cocktail together. Yeah. Well, and you get to sort of like share your best, best yeah. stories or whatever, right? Water cooler yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and that should, you know, I, we, I used to take that for granted for sure. And I, and I think COVID has also, and again, people would not believe me either that when I say I'm introverted because I have a background in theater and, you know, directing people see me as a very, um, you know, very good at public speaking and very, you know, putting myself out there. But actually, I've really realized I'm at heart, I'm an introvert. And I, I actually thrive in being able to stay home and not see humans because, you know, the, the challenges of being an elected official and always in public has really weighed on me over the years. Like I, I almost cringe, you know, as people are coming towards me because a lot of the times they want to tackle you and talk to you about some issue or or give you some their great idea for how we're going to solve this and it's and it's always you know it's a balancing act to feel like i'm trying to have my own personal time right now with my friends and and you're invading my space but um mm -hmm. it, it's always a bit of a juggle but i i took for granted going to those events those conventions and things and having that opportunity to just chat for a few minutes at the reception with this person or that person from other communities and be like oh i heard what you were saying earlier about this project you guys are doing that's amazing like can you can, i'm gonna go on your website find the staff report and we should do that you know like all that kind of stuff is is really important for not having to reinvent the wheel in your own community too so yeah i kind of feel like it's sort of that adage about like imitation being the most sincere form of flattery right like mm -hmm. if yeah. i'm trying to be like you because you are doing something worth copying right you know like you're you're working it out like and I think that that like I mean building seniors housing that's so I'm so envious of you one of the motions that I put forward my very first motion put forward when I was first elected in 2018 was you know we need to have more people like 
we have a single family home with three bedrooms and we have one person living there and we need to sort of like make more uh, people living sort of together so they can look out for each other in the sense that like, and this was again, pre-COVID, right? Um, Just so that we can have like, pool the resources now we might be able to get the roof fixed these sort of things and like just having like only need for one kitchen you know like uh and and like then later on when i was doing more uh, age-friendly action work i learned about the word norks the naturally occurring retirement communities or something and like and i and like so i'm just like learning the words for things as I'm living that experience, right? And I'm like, yeah. I'm trying to be like, oh, well, our community is a small one and we, you know, do have a high um, sort of retired population, a high demographic of retired people. And so when we just had this like power outage for a week, that like super highlighted a lot of like, uh, yeah, you know, problem. oh, you can't chop your own wood because you just are unable to, right? You know, so then it just like, yeah, highlighted all these sorts of... Um, under the woodwork kind of things yeah 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 that's totally like uh, and i i totally love that you know the different models that we're starting to see like specifically for seniors housing um where they're doing like certain you know they'll form a little group uh and purchase a, a big house and then you know sort of turn it into almost like a boarding house with a mix of a few seniors that are friends you know they get along they're friends they all kind of buy into this model and then have a couple of like college students living there Mm -hmm. and you know and have kind of this built-in agreement that the younger people are going to help a bit with you know if there's any issues for the seniors that they can't tackle and I mean that I love that I love that idea of like thinking outside the box for how we move forward in a more resilient way because the, the the sort of standard models of things that are happening in some communities don't work in all communities and they're and they're just not feasible in mm-hmm. a lot of cases and i mean this project that i'm working on in my day job is 34 units of seniors housing and it's something actually that my mother who had been a city councillor um for about 12 years oh, that's awesome she, as her as her passion thing that outside of her day job she was the president of this seniors housing society for about 25 years Wow. And they have, they operate three small buildings with just like 10 and 12 units in each building. And they're just typically one story or two story little buildings. But before she passed away, her, her dream was to build a larger four story building with an elevator and make it much more, you know, adaptable for world, full wheelchair accessibility mm-hmm. as required, but mm-hmm. still a rental, still rental apartments for seniors. Yep. And so her and I started this project before she passed away it was about a year and a half two years before she passed away we put together this design concept and you know this is what we're looking at and the society bought property and i worked on some initial concept designs and and yeah we managed to get it all the way through to now we're um under construction we're probably looking at occupancy for about july june or july and um it's been it's just it's just been the 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 most challenging because I'm so I'm so like emotional about it because my mom she didn't even get to see us break ground she passed away um, in the summer of 2018 and um, but we had the approvals and so it was like when she was passing away it was like she was you know kind of <laughs> carry on <laughs> take the torch and you know you got to get this project built because we need more seniors housing and Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it's it's I'm sort of embedded in this emotionally as well as it's my day job to project manage the project. So yeah, it's that sounds it's amazing, happening. like a legacy gift, right? You know, like I mean, a I'm legacy. sorry for your loss, of course, and I just like feel like just like to have that kind of shared passion where you're both like recognizing like can you can you imagine like 20 years in the making so she's like involved in the society and then it's like okay now you're the project manager like i just think of like a huge epic olympic torch being passed you know (laughs) and i can see why you're emotional about it like i feel like i'm emotional about a lot of things you know like just because it's it's hard for me to like during the power outage if, if i don't have power uh, you know, and my neighbor doesn't have power. There's sort of this like we're in this together kind of thing. And and I know that there's definitely a lot of not only seniors but also like accessible, um, like places. Vulnerable individuals. 
individuals. Yeah. Like, not, how are you getting by without power? Because we take that for granted. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Well, and, like, where I lived before, pri- previous to the house that I live in now, it only had electric baseboard heat. And the person who lives there in that building now is older and less capable to, you know, chop wood or get a wood stove or blah, blah, blah. And the house that I have, we have electric baseboard heat and a pellet stove. So we had to run a generator to run the pellet stove because it needs to be electric fan, like kind of a plugged in. And, you know, I every time the power goes out in the winter storms, I'm like, oh, you know. Next year we'll get a wood stove, you know. But like, it's it. (laughs) You can say that for twenty years. We haven't had a big power outage like you guys have. Like you guys have had a few really bad ones in the last few years. I know there was. I don't know if it. I think it affected Tassas a couple years ago, or it was like it was a week or two weeks without power one winter. Yeah, I think that was in Zabalis mostly. Mostly is about, okay, yeah, because, I mean, we, you know, we hear about the longer term outages in the more remote places on the island and that, and, you know, as remote as we are, we're still, we're still pretty lucky that they, I mean, I had an outage recently, probably around the same time you had your week outage. I had an outage at my house for, I mean, I think it was four hours or five hours. Mm-hmm. And my heat is currently, um, I have a ductless heat pump, which is electric. Okay. Are you there still? The house that's not very well insulated. Okay. And the existing system is a hot water radiated boiler system. So it's a gas boiler, but it doesn't run if the power's out. Yeah. Well, and this is like the thing about having those sort of like, like I know that kind of what I've learned at least, because I've owned, this is my just first term. Um, but I, I feel like redundancy is a dirty word. Um, because it costs money to be redundant, right? You know, and time is money and all these things. And I, but like, I also feel like if you have more, like we're out of power, if we had solar, if we had any investment in solar panels in this town, we could have had some battery charging during the day, you know, like, or in the, in neighboring, it's like a church-based community, Esperanza, they have a Pelton wheel. They had power because they weren't on the grid. You know, and I and I just see how like these small little micro projects, which might not be able to like um, justify themselves in the cost benefit analysis compared to like Niagara Falls or, you know, the John Hart Dam or Site C or, you know, Three Gorges or whatever. These are huge mega projects. But then I always think like, but it's a 100 pennies in a dollar. Right. You know, like there's small little wins. And, you know, like if. If we can have like, like there's communities that are fully diesel, right? You know, and like small winds. Like I was, uh, had this other mayor who's um, from the Arctic Circle and she was telling me that it took like so long, maybe 15 years to do the bureaucratic process to apply for a wind turbine, you know? (laughs) And like, I just guess I just, or, or even today I was on the radio sort of talking about like healthcare and how there's, nurses and doctors who are trained nurses and doctors but they're not certified in Canada right and so we're having these like huge levels of burnout in healthcare and we're not really like opening the pipeline somewhere else you know the whole a door closes and a window opens kind of let's cut some bureaucratic red tape and actually you know make it easier for people to do what they want to do yeah well I mean that's the sort of um that's the country in us maybe you know like you know, free up the dams and just like let the river flow kind of um, like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I just definitely feel like there's um, uh, a way to encourage. Right. You know, and I don't know how um, I don't know always like how to sort of speak to people in their language, you yeah. know, but I, I, I think that like. For me, living in a a town where there's, like, maybe enough kids for one class, like, 30, under 30 kids, Uh uh, and then have, you know, the majority of the population of our town who are, you know, seniors who maybe have, who who wouldn't be able to shovel their own walks, right? Who do need to have elevators, you know? Like, and, uh, and I just see, like, um so much opportunity squandered 
that's the hardest part, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to ever give up because these things still need to happen, right? You know, like whether it's today, tomorrow for your mom to move into or not, right? You know, like I'm going to need sort of seniors housing one day, right? You know, so until until like, you know, daycare and seniors housing and, you know, rural buses and these sort of things and or or even wind turbines are, you know, stretched out to the areas where I don't know. Uh, like I guess this is a funny way to put it, but um there's definitely not a lot of like in Newfoundland they take a vote and then they just decide that everyone has to leave the town now and we're shutting this entire town down right and that's like one of the uh, I guess worries uh, from living in a town that's really small that doesn't really have enough people to tax for the basic infrastructure of sewer water and roads I think about like yeah but we have like 600 percent population growth in the summertime as sort of a resort or like a right a tourist destination and yeah. that also has changed from covid too because we usually had american tourists oh yeah um but that's sort of shifted a bit and yeah and and even too a lot of people who own second homes here are from america uh or who yeah. who have yeah. become residents too right like people who oh, yeah. still who still live here who retired to here to be here you know yeah and i and i guess i um i (laughs) i guess i want to figure out how that can be like utilized right like are we you know a a retirement community you know (laughs) is there such a thing you know like is there a whole town where it's just like a place where you go to like kick back and be taken care of like <laughs> I don't know it's uh it's forcing us to think about a lot of other things like whenever I talk to uh, communities um that are maybe off the beaten track is the best way to put it um there's like talk about like in the cities you get tent cities and parks and then in sort of rural or remote or isolated places you sort of get people living rough in houses and but houses is a generous way to put it, right? You know, and and I think too, like about how my own sort of process has worked out, where you know, moving into this house, making small improvements that takes time, that takes money, you know, and when you're on a fixed income and everything is going up, like you said, the property or not property, but um, building materials and labor and all these things, right? You know, like it's just. Um, I don't know. There's a sort of uh, a vacuum that needs to be filled. Totally. And it, we, you know, there is so much like bureaucratic red tape and so many like hurdles to jump over that it's like, I feel like in a lot of ways we really need a, an over, an overhaul and a systems change because, you know, there, there's, it's like, we all understand, especially in local government, you know, we all understand and are constantly lobbying the provincial government to, to do better and to help us, you know, give us the tools as local governments to meet our, help the province meet our climate targets and this sort of thing. And it just baffles me how many roadblocks are constantly put in our way Mm. that are sort of embedded in the whole system. Like I just found out recently that the BC Utilities Commission has has an inquiry that closes in next week Mm. on trying to regulate, they want to regulate municipalities who want to do their own energy projects. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's being that's pushback from Fortis and BC Hydro wanting municipalities and local governments to have to jump through the same hoops as them. Yeah. Because, it, but it's like it's already hard enough as a local government to try to get a to do a district energy project because it's the cost and the this and the capacity and the, I mean, all of the other hurdles. And so it's like, so seriously, you want to add more hurdles to an already broken system that is not built to not designed to help you know actually accomplish the things we need to do there's just roadblocks in place all the time mm-hmm. so, you know it, it's like it and really like I was gonna say the this seniors project is only happening because I, I had to be like a pit bull and push and push and push the funders to, to approve this project and just 
I basically just decided this is happening. Mm-hmm. Like, and I had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And we had to jump through red tape and this and that. And most people or organizations would have given up. <laughs> yeah. This went, wow, this is way too hard. It's going to cost way too much money. We're giving up. Like, yeah. this is nonsense. So, yeah, to try to do, like, you know, some of the rules need to be changed and some of the, you know, requirements need to be relaxed some situations and you know smaller communities we need to have the ability to think outside the box and be able to do things that maybe weren't previously um acceptable or Mm -hmm. you know different funding strategies and you know trying to um figure out how you can utilize your high summer population tax them a little bit at a different rate or you know Mm -hmm. like empty empty vacant houses that only get used that they end up being somebody's second home or and get maybe they they only come up once a once a month for a year in a year like Caroline Are you still there? Cool. Oh, yeah. y- you kind of cut out for a minute there. Oh. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm rambling on. Well, I, I missed that, like, you know, juicy chunk about, like, how empty homes don't, you know, keep themselves uh, maintained, you know. Or... <laughs> well, yeah, and they're not taxed usually at, at any kind of, like, that. the people, if they're only coming up and using their home as a summer home every couple weeks, they get, they're not contributing to the community. They're not, and that home is sitting empty and not being a home for someone for the rest of the year. Well, and then it creates, like, problems with, like, rentals otherwise, right? You know, because... Rentals, you know, community cohesion. Like, it's just, like, it it penetrates a lot of different social issues that are really not seen because of this sort of privilege that exists that this, you know, wealthy couple is able to own this house and decide that they either don't want to be in it at all all year or they don't want renters because they're a pain in the butt and they just want to... You know, maybe they'll put it on Airbnb for a couple of months in high season. I mean, it's just the entitlement and the privilege is definitely really a big problem in our communities. And, you know, there needs to be some strategies to, ta- to start tackling that. And we've, we've been trying to do that here. Um, we actually created a social, a social action planning and advisory committee and then hired a social planner in our city to, as a regional service, so mm. a regional service with our First Nation and our municipality partnered together and, and we ha- we hired a social planner and we are working on, you know, we developed a housing, our housing needs assessment and we just developed a, a poverty reduction strategy. So we actually, you know, have done a lot of work trying to figure out things that we can do to try to reduce poverty in our, in our area because it's getting out of control. And, yeah. you know, a lot of communities don't have the sort of ability to do that. Well, social planning is, like, one of the things that, like, like, it's, like, a city thing, right? You know, like, I, I understand that, like, the closest service Canada or Tim Hortons is 200 kilometers away from me, right? You know, the closest hospital is quite a distance. And if I go there in the ambulance, good luck getting home, you know? So, like, there's a a lot to be said about, like, the equalization, uh, because for a long time, like, places, like... Powell River or Tassis have exported wealth to cities uh, and now we're sort of like okay well everything's been been cut in mind and whatever so now we're like but we're still here you know because yeah. we're we're salty and we refuse to give up you know but I I guess like the uh, the idea of having um, like <sighs> a way to highlight the pluses, right? Like, yeah, there's no Tim Hortons and yeah, there's less services and, you know, like highlighting the pluses, like, I don't know, like it is cheaper to me to live here. Like I wouldn't have been able to buy a house anywhere else except here. And, uh, you know, we have seen the property values going up, uh, but you mentioned this sort of social worker or social coordinator, you said, and that reminded me of this, like, donut economics thing where it's like the social foundation and then the planetary like ceiling right so it's like we're not allowing too much richness like you know there's no penthouse here there's only you know uh you know a gold silver bronze kind of like you know 
no one lives so far over others. So like it was sort of like talking about like redistribution and and about like things where you know it's like to me that old adage about like fences and tables like don't build a bigger fence build a longer table and share more of what you have and I and I know that that's not really the system that you know like like the whole point of owning property and having it go up in value and having that sort of like speculation like like real estate as investment right you know uh it sort of misses the point of like why we ever made a house in the first place why homesteaders you know stayed in one place and grew a garden instead of continuously being nomadic and moving on to the next resource right you know like and seeing how much you can get for this and you know build your equity and build your wealth it's like no it it, it can't be about that anymore Mm. we're just not we're we're it's not sustainable it hasn't been sustainable for a long time and it's we need to we need to totally break everything down <laughs> we need to do things differently if we're gonna if if humans and and all the other poor species on the planet are gonna survive this climate emergency where we've thrust ourselves into i mean it's yeah it's crazy no i get it and i get to like sort of the idea of breaking it down right you know it's like these hierarchies where it's like well this is appropriate and this isn't and like i mean I don't know, I think it was probably last year, but someone who was, like, unhoused, sleeping in a tent, a tree fell down on them and they died. Oh, my God. And that wasn't here. It was in Duncan, I think. But, uh, you know, it was still this, like, there's two worlds, you know, right here in our our own world, right? You know, there's the, the people who maybe have the luxury of having a home with heat, you know, and having, you know, these, like, uh, ability to pay their bills and that sort of security and then there's and that's like the thing about the ceiling and the floor right like I learn more by you know getting down and dirty than I do kind of by like hobnobbing yeah. um, not that like I I learn on both sides of it but I yeah. I guess uh, like it, it's more of a realizing kind of thing I'll I remember this um, instance where my neighbor, she is looking for a rental. She used to live next door to me, but someone bought the house and wanted to move in. And, you know, sort of like, okay, you have until this time to move out. But before when she was living there, she slipped in her driveway. And so I canceled my day and I took her to the next town over that has a x-ray machine. And in the waiting room of the Gold River uh, Health Center... This person talked to me about how a big thing was coming, a meteor was coming, and then the air wasn't going to be breathable and everyone would have to live in their homes, stuck in their homes with these filters because the air would be too toxic from the ash of the meteorite and all these things. And it was like, you know, you learn a lot of interesting things listening to people in the waiting room of the health center because even though I didn't put much stock in a meteor, then there's this like, don't look up movie and there's <laughs> and there's but it's it's like analogy like you know it, yeah. it, it he wasn't really yeah it wasn't really about a meteor but we do have masks and we do stay in our houses now we do yeah. think about filtration now more than we did before right you know and yeah. we've been changed by this experience oh for sure but also we're still the sort of same reptiles we were before in the way that like uh there's you know, old habits die hard. Like, I am still a hugger. I still want to handshake people when I meet them. Not because I want their germs, but because I want to have that equal playing field. You know, I want to say, cheers, I'm going to have my drink spill into yours and your drink spill into mine, as if to say, we aren't poisoning each other. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which... one, one day we'll get back to being able to do that safely, I think, but... Yeah, well, it's... For it's, a while, aren't going to be comfortable with that. It's And, and maybe never again, right? Like, I mean, how do you become an un-germaphobe, right? Like, I, I think yeah. that for someone like myself who, um, you know, in different times, I remember being a little bit uh, in between homes in Toronto and yeah. eating out of dumpsters. And now I have a, a you know, seven-year-old who is scared to death of sharing a cup with someone or, you know, just like 
not having their mask on, even though they're playing outside, you know? And I just like, and I see how the current situation of reality of today is changing what is normal to people, right? You know, it's changing, like, for me and you, maybe it's going to be normal for us to go back to, you know, a time when we can have a drink and cheers or handshake or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. But for people who've never done that, who've always been told that, you know, touching others means that you're putting yourself at risk, you know, like, it's going to be a whole new, like, and I just kind of think about, like, how human behavior it takes a long time to change it, right? You know, like, yeah. and, and I think about that in terms of the climate and other things, right? Like, I mean, when our power went out, it was a lot of Jenny's going, yeah. right? You know, so like, there's the sort of like, uh, the quick fixes and then the long hauls. Yeah. Yeah. And when I thought, I thought it would be like, I thought behavior, you know, would take a long time to change too. But in some cases, I'm so shocked at how quickly we've, we've changed our behaviors, like you say, and, and even those of us that are old <laughs> and, you know, how become so used to, like, even before COVID that we had a couple of summers there where we had terrible air. Smoky, yeah, yeah, the smoky ones. I, yeah, the smoke, and I have asthma, so and I like there were we have a an air quality sensor on one of our schools, Mm -hmm. so I go on the app, and and it is amazing to me how quickly I kind of just accepted that I had to walk my dog outside wearing a a full blown respirator with P one hundred cartridges to look like I'm going to paint a car in a shop, Mm. and to walk my dog on a trail because ash was actually falling from the sky and I could not breathe if I went outside. Yeah. And I would check the app before I would leave the house and be like, oh my God, today it's 263 mm-hmm. on the air quality index, which is death, basically. It's like way worse than Beijing. Like, yeah. And, and I just, suddenly it was like, huh, that's the new, that's my new normal. I just check the app before I go outside. And I only leave the house to walk the dog. And I only leave the house with a mask, with a respirator on. Prepared. Yeah. Prepared. It it is so weird how, like, that was like, oh, well, this is what we do now. Yeah. Well, and it just, like, my little brother would play these, like, video games about, like, atomic fallout and stuff. Like, and, like, I guess that's, to me, what it's, like... I'm equating it to, right? It's like a Walking Dead sort of scenario where it's like, oh, there's a lot of zombies. I better bring my baseball bat, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> or, or like uh, preparing yourself, right? You know, like yeah. I, I understand now how, um, how like I myself usually just walk out and try to deal with whatever weather there was, but I know other people who look on the weather app and try to plan their time around like when when it's going to be not raining or whatever like that and I and I can see how knowledge is power that way and it can give you like if we could think like people who have asthma and we could put their needs people who can't breathe in high smoky situations put those people's needs above oh I just want to have cheap wood heat right you know like instead of like positioning it around the person who just like wants to keep their costs low which is not a bad thing I understand I'm definitely a poor person um but I I also see like that's not the only way to view things and we do tend to measure things in dollars right you know and like but if you can't breathe that's like a priceless thing right you know like you'll pay any amount of like asthma medication or you know like just to keep keep you alive right so absolutely yeah yeah, so there has to be, yeah, there, we have to figure out how we're going to carry on moving forward because, you know, there has to be, you know, an equity lens placed on all all our decision-making going forward as well. You know, looking at what's better for the health, what's better for safety, what's better for the, you know, bringing, rising people up out of poverty and, you know, understanding that carbon emission reductions are can cost money in some you know in a lot of place a lot of areas but in some communities that and and people that don't have you know the privilege that some of us have we have to acknowledge that they they need to be given the opportunity to 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 raise themselves up to the level that us privileged people are at so they might be emitting more carbon until they actually get to the level that 
you know, of equity with the rest of other like societies. You know, it's just, it's more complex than just, you know, everybody stop driving and everybody stop eating your homes. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's so much. Well, I like we we were here for a week and like we still had it. We still ran our pellet stove, but it was still cold in our house. And after a week of not having any heat in our house, I wasn't really in a a pleasant, you know, proactive. Yeah, I was definitely in a negative way, you know, and I was definitely like, I'm not comfortable. That's making me make everyone else uncomfortable. Right. (laughs) And that, so that's where, like, some, you know, communities that are cut off from, like, yours that are, you know, going to be without power, the more sort of, you know, storm events that we have, for example, if you're going to be cut off from power for much longer periods of time than, you know, Nanaimo or Courtney or, you know, other communities that they'll, for some reason, you know, they get more, there's more people, so they get their power turned off, whatever, turned on quicker, whatever. It's a priority, right? It's the same way that, like... But then your community needs to have the sort of ability to, like, let's help this community so that it's okay if you all have wood stoves. Let's give some funding so that everybody can have a wood stove for backup heat when your power goes out. Because we know it's going to go out every year for a week or two weeks or, you know, so it's like there needs to be some give and take that, okay, well, this community might need that. And, and like, you know, they're pushing with solar, for example. With solar, everything's being pushed towards net metering into the hydro grid. Mm. Well, communities that are a little bit more remote, right? Oh, you've cut out again. Like, Laskiti Island, it's kind of hilarious because they're completely off-grid. I know them, yeah. And we had a report on our regional district because they're part of our regional district a couple few years ago, and it was talking about how they were... You know, poor Laskiti, they're not even on the hydro grid, blah, blah, blah. It was laughable because they were like, yeah, we're not on the hydro grid. We're completely self-sufficient. Yeah. So when all you all are sitting there in the dark and you have no power because there's a two-week blackout, we're fine. We're carrying on. And it was like, wow, that was an eye-opener. Well, it's wow. like being that small, resilient person who's like not waiting for hydro to save them, but going ahead and moving forward with their own systems right you know however micro they are makes you you know the innovator right you know hydro isn't the innovator you know they're the big behemoth they're the one that's like the titanic too big to fail totally yeah totally and that's what you know there should be i feel like there should be more education and sort of support out there for you know people wanting to do a little bit of an emergency backup system of solar okay it's not going to power your whole house it's not you might still have to shut you know, a lot of things will get will be blacked out yeah but if in you're in a power outage situation there should be some essential essential loads attached to some solar panels that is probably going to be a lot more affordable to run mm. that, you know at least during the day you can charge up your charge up your phone charge up you know your few devices maybe keep your fridge running and maybe be able to turn your heat on you know maybe you'll have enough battery backup that you can have the heat running or something like that that's not what i'm seeing i'm seeing everything going towards solar for net metering which is putting this power the excess power into the grid Mm -hmm. which once when the grid is down a lot of those systems do not also have an inverter to battery backup Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's like It's not really about you helping yourself. It's about, you know, like, and like, I'm not trying to dissuade any like producers, whether they're going to put like solar on their house. Like I definitely want, whether it's going to be just for you in your own batteries in your attic. Great. If it's going to be for feeding the net metering. Great. We are producers. We're not just consumers. Right. You know, like we, we have to have the power to do stuff about things. We're not just like waiting for like the government, whether it's the province or the Fed or the local, right, to save us, we need to have, like, some skin in our own game. Yeah. And I think that, like, the whole, I mean, I love the idea of solar energy, but it rains a lot here. So I don't really feel like that would be, uh, it would be better if we could get some wind because it's windy, you know? And, like, and I think that, like, there's sort of, like, just like anywhere, like, there's some parts of the river that one fish like over another, you know? And there's sort of, like, these, like, geographical... Um, it was in yesterday's Green Talk, uh, Dr. Chimera said, geographical discontents. And, you know, there is places that have wind and some that have sun. And, you know, like, when we can sort of share 
that throughout the like bigger like hydro network that would be a way to you know when when you're broke i'm flush and when i'm and then vice versa right you know where yeah. it would be like it's not always sunny and it's not always windy but it's either one or the other right you know and yeah. i yeah and, and i think that like yeah maybe you could have a wind project that was that you know was like a district energy project for all of you know this many households on a big wind turbine yeah so that that might be possible but well you hydro's not going to support that mm-hmm. it's going to take you know it's going to be taking money out of the grid mm-hmm. well and, and i understand too how like my neighbors who are like not technically my neighbors in the sense that down the the cut on the inlet towards Esperanza because they have a Pelton wheel because they have like five houses that just get water off this like like micro hydro situation they were they were fully charged the whole time they didn't experience this outage that we did you know and so in a way that's that redundancy built in where it's like yeah we have the power grid and hydro works 90% of the time you know so I can you know have a fridge and a freezer at the same time crazy right you know but also there's sort of these like expect the unexpected things right where we're like well there's gonna be a surprise it might not be today it might not be tomorrow but we should probably you know hedge our bets i guess oh yeah yeah (laughs) it's really exciting to think about like all the opportunities that aren't yet done that's the way i look at it i i really try to stay positive and and go you know what all these challenges we're facing are opportunities and we we don't even know all the opportunities that we haven't even talked you know thought about yet or tapped into so i i i don't know i think that there's a lot of opportunities for us to become better than we were before and become much more resilient than we are now well we're smarter because like we're just like more aware right like this is the thing about like you can't, uh, or like, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? You know, and like by us having the ability to understand whether it's like a housing crisis with like access to, you know, uh, pe- people being able to have elevators and stuff like that, or whether it's uh, about like having electricity that we're making ourselves and we're not importing from elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, like. Yeah. I, I guess I just like feel like there's so much hope in the ways that we can change, right? Like, yeah, yeah. and and that's where we're like humans are very adaptable animal. You know, they can live in pretty much any climate. You know, like the whole Jules Verne thing aside, um, under the sea. Uh, you know, there's people in the desert. There's people in the rainforest. There's people. You know. Yep. In, in tropical and in Arctic situations, right? And so, like, we're really able to, I don't know, learn from our surroundings and use the the crisis of today for the, you know, better alignment of tomorrow, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, like, it's so funny that your day job is in uh, project management and in architecture because... That's something that my spouse is studying and I'm learning a lot about like sitting in on their classes, learning a lot about like uh, step codes and retrofits and, you know, like we have a lot of old buildings in our town. The newest building just recently got built by the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah. And so that's like the sort of the gold standard of today. Everything else is like, you know, in various stages of at the end of its useful life and needs to be yeah. renewed in a way. And, uh, and I just like, I know that it's kind of, uh, it's kind of gauche to get excited about all the problems that need solving. <laughs> but, uh, I, I do feel like, you know, um, there's so much opportunity in that, right. You know, there like is. the, and there's lots of innovation to happen yet that we haven't even, broken the surface on because there's been resistance, you know, by government and by corporations and, you know, our building, our existing building stock, you know, it emits so much greenhouse gas emissions provincially, nationally, globally, 
that we really and we need to stop demolishing old houses oh. destroying it in the landfill and building new thank you so much it's easier it's easier to build you know more energy efficient from new yeah but that we can't just keep scrapping old building stock we have to figure out more innovative ways to retrofit these buildings from a you know an economical point of view governments are going to have to step up with funding you know funding incentives to help homeowners do that because it's i'm looking at that with my house because my house is 1956 built it's got that stucco pebble dash stucco on the outside we have stucco on the inside yeah yeah like it's and i I can't i'm living in the house i can't gut the drywall to do better insulation yeah i'm trying to figure out a strategy for basically wrapping the outside of the building in insulation and then recladding it in order to just make the walls warmer so that when i do have a power outage it's not going to be like my we had that one four or five hour power outage and my temperature, as soon as the heat went off, my temperature started plummeting. Mm-hmm. And it was a colder, it was December, and, you know, it wasn't Arctic temperatures, but it was colder. And my temperature just in the house started dropping so fast. I was shocked at how much the temperature dropped mm-hmm. for a period of time that the power was out. And, you know, it's like, I, it's like, so you're just going to wear a sweater and your parka for the next, until the power comes back on? And pray. Hold them out. But it's like, I have to figure out a strategy for, I'm not, I can't afford to replace all my windows. Yeah. So it's like, I got to figure out a way to put like maybe two inches of Rockwell comfort board on the outside and then strap it and then put some different cladding on the outside. But still keeping in mind that I may need to access the windows to replace those windows to more efficient ones in a few years when they start crapping out. Yeah. And it's, it's costly. So it's like on the plus side, my DC assessment value just went through the roof. So mm-hmm. now I was able to like remortgage my house and get a bit of money for retrofitting it on my mortgage. Oh, wow. The value went way up from what I what I owe on it. That's what everyone is saying. That's, you yeah, know, like, like... So now it's like the bank was like, all right, your value's gone way up. We can remortgage it, give you a bit of money for retrofitting it. And so it's all going back into the house. Mm-hmm. I don't have any money... I have no savings and I have no cash flying around that I can tackle a huge retrofit job on my house. Like It took us three years to save the money to get the supplies and materials for replacement of a roof. And up until that point, it was just buckets, right? You know, like... exactly. (laughs) And and then you're causing more damage to the structure. Other things can start happening. So it's like, yeah, without government kind of stepping up and putting more which actually got us to the province has been doing a really good job because like there's a lot of rebates that are in place for um for you know converting your fossil fuel appliances to to electric to heat pumps that sort of thing like they do have a lot of rebates and stuff that can add up and, mm-hmm. and be effective but it's still i think only like 50 dollars per window mm. to place a window and it's like you know a window is going to cost depending on the size of it it might be a thousand dollar window if it's a decent sized window mm-hmm. so it's it's still you know it costs homeowners a lot of money and there's still no like there's no easy way to retrofit a, a house without when you're living in it mm-hmm. so there needs there i know that there's innovative ways that we can do this but they haven't you know they're just basically just the tip of the iceberg in terms of strategies for doing that so you know yeah hopefully more people will will become innovators and you know figure out better products and better ways that we can make these our existing buildings more energy efficient and and like the longevity of them stretch the longevity so that we're not tearing down these perfectly good houses Mm -hmm. because it's hard to make them more energy that really chafes me you know like because Mm -hmm. i I, maybe just because i can only think about like when i didn't have a home right you know when i was like living in my van and i'm like oh my god i'm sorry that this isn't nice enough for you and you need to bulldoze it you know like i guess i just like i'm pretty hung up on those sort of like and even too like when we moved into this house there was a crack in one of the windows and you know now we've lived here almost seven years maybe more and it's still there you know like getting three thousand dollars to sink into a new window means we still have 10 other old windows you know and uh you know also no food right you know so also yeah exactly and and then you look at oh buddy down the street is just taking a big excavator and crunching that that perfectly good house yeah 
splinters and going to scoop it into a bin and in our case, truck it down to Washington State to throw it in the Rebanco landfill. Wow. And that just breaks my heart because, I mean, some of the homes in Powell River, like especially in the in the town site, the original town site area. I know about it, yeah. That... We, we've done demolitions or renovations in some cases. We, you know, open up a wall to renovate, uh, you know, part of the house. And it's edge grain fur, old growth framing lumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Well, they, we, we're we so rich here that we just waste so much, right? You know, like, yeah, that's the thing the about... Garbage. It's like, no, 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 let's save all that wood and, you know, just clean it. And it's like, it's like rock hard when it's a hundred year old old growth, like it's hundreds of year old old growth that's been in this house for a hundred years. Yeah. It's like super rock hard, like super structural and beautiful. It could be like planed down and re you know, re-milled into, like, trim or something. But, oh, for years, like, we're, I think we're just sort of now in the last year kind of understanding that, well, yeah, it's kind of going to be, you know, not, it's going to be hard, not only hard to get old growth materials for construction, mm. but we don't, want to, we don't want to continue logging old growth. So in our community, we actually had a, we had a guy that used to salvage old growth logs from the bottom of a lake and and mill them and kiln dry them and and turn them into material to be used in construction because yeah we don't want to be logging any more old growth that's like a thing of the past well and this is the thing about like carbon zero net zero is also means that like we need to value the carbon that gets sequestered by the living trees right yeah because like like, i i i love old wood but I like to breathe more, right? You know, okay, and yeah, yeah. No, the logging and it's it's good that I'm I'm seeing the province starting to recognize, like thanks to the old growth strategic review mm-hmm. and all of the you know all of the advocacy that's been happening. Like it's really good to see the province actually stepping up and and now saying, okay, moratorium on old growth. At least you know we need to and and you know incorporating the the, the consultation and coordination with the indigenous communities. Like that's been such lacking in our whole our whole society and our whole colonialist <laughs> structure that it, it's really I'm happy to see that starting to happen so I, I do have hope like I said I'm an optimist so I I see that and I don't I don't focus on what we haven't done it's like okay you know things are happening yeah things move at a snail's pace in government no matter what level you are at uh-huh. and you know hopefully we can start removing some of those barriers and some of those you know, roadblocks to make it things move a little bit more quickly. But, you know, things are starting to shift, I think. It's the awareness is starting to happen. So I'm always hopeful that that's a positive thing. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to let you know that we only have two minutes left of recording. We can keep talking. Sometimes okay. I just gab on for hours and then realize that I, um, oh, none of that good stuff we got was actually recorded. But I, I guess, like, the thing about... Um, the the recycling, like the, I've heard about this group called Not Unbuilders, where they actually like take everything apart. Yeah. yeah, and I was really inspired by that work because I'm just like, because I I do feel like it's like a global cop out to get like the sec the second or third world, whatever whatever's not the first world is us, yeah. you know, and and oh well they're gonna process our recycling for us, you know, or like those yeah, sort of things, right? Like it's it's super. Um, <sighs> not being responsible right totally we yeah. need to do we each need to all need to deal with our own garbage and our own shit <laughs> we need to deal with our own stuff locally and, and in ourselves and in our communities mm-hmm. well there's no sending it away right you know like there is no way the, the idea that your garbage goes to washington state that reminds me of when when i lived in london uh which is ontario uh yep the garbage from Toronto would pass through London and go to Michigan. But then there was like a big campaign that was like, we don't want that garbage from Canada. So now it goes to uh, near the reserve in London, right? You know, where it's like, again, somewhere other than Toronto. Toronto doesn't. Toronto. Yeah. yeah. I, I went to the, um, to the London, Ontario, um, the plant that deals with all the Toronto's food waste. Oh, all- yeah, like they, they're they turning it into a compost, like a fertilizer product. So, yeah. But it, it's, yeah. It's got Is it like waste management? Product. Well, it's, no, it's called, um, oh my God, I toured the facility when I was there for the Sustainable Communities Conference a few years ago. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's taking all the food, like it's a compost facility, tra- like 
turning all um, food waste into a fertilizer product. Yeah. But, and, it, and I think there's probably some methane capture uh, aspect of it. Smart. But, um, it, yeah, it's like a, it's kind of a smelly, bit of a smelly facility. You know, it's a big, you know, monstrous industrial yeah. thing. And it's kind of in the, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if that's the area that it's in. I can't remember, but... Yeah, it's like, it's pretty gross because they take all the Toronto's, like all the food course and all the, like everything that gets in the garbage, like if there's drink bottles and all the stuff that has to be all separated out from the food waste, it's yeah. quite the, the plastic bags and all the stuff getting 